And we'll begin our evening together <coughs> chanting the refuges and the precepts as we will at the beginning of every Dhamma talk evening. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sam a sam buddhasa buddham saranang gachami dhammam saranang gachami sagam saranang gachami dutiyampi buddham saranang gachami Dutiyampi dhammam saranang gachami Dutiyampi sangam saranang gachami Tatiyampi buddham saranang gachami Tatiyampi dhammam saranang gachami Tatiyampi sangam saranang Gachami Panati Pata Veramani Sika Padam Samadiami Adina Dana Veramani Sika Padam Samadiami Abrahma Charia Veramani Sika Padam Samadiami Musawada Veramani Sika Padam Samadiyami Sura Merea Majapamadatana Veramani Sika Padam Samadiyami Vikala Bojana Veramani Sika Padam Samadiyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Managanda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vipusanatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Idam me silam Magapalanyanasa Pachayo Otu This evening's talk is about spiritual urgency, and the term in Pali is Samvega. For those of you that may not know, uh, Pali was the spiritual language at the time of the Buddha. It's very closely related to Sanskrit, and it's very often the language that the Buddha taught in. What are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you here to a retreat such as this particular one? 
So, beginning this evening with a few questions, some of which have probably visited your mind and heart at times. These questions that humans have felt and asked forever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart, the deep questions and the yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is this thing called death? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully, peacefully, in this life with all of the challenges and the difficulties in this constantly changing world, with all of the difficulties and challenges within me and all around me? What is it that brings me to practice? And again, why am I here in this retreat? Our practice isn't about getting caught up in mulling or kind of stewing over these questions. But rather, these questions can be taken in as a motivating force and an inspiration towards connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. This evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken. And as I've already mentioned, the Pali term for this is Samvega, which is most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually, it's a term that's kind of difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist text, the force or the energy of samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to an urgency to practice. And then the classical text goes on to say that samvega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one, followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So samvega is the urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken. It's an energy within us that's not at all fraught with a kind of tense or frantic or obsessive quality. But rather it's a quality of mind, uh, a quality of heart that very often comes through or comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws of the way of things. Some degree of understanding how it is. And so let's look at this for a few moments. For some of you, Samvega may have been sensed or maybe first felt as the endlessness of the round and round and round in daily life. Others of you may have felt a certain urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, in sensing and seeing and knowing mental and physical phenomena continuously arising 
and disappearing, arising and disappearing in its gross and maybe also in some of its subtler forms. And the attendant unsatisfactoriness, the unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. And for some of you, the sense of urgency, some vega may be experienced through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges in life, the suffering in life from this particular perspective in general or maybe more specifically in your own life. For some, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long, accustomed, or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or very directly experiencing bias or prejudice in relationship to race or culture or economic circumstances or gender or maybe age or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain, you may also have experienced a vague or maybe not so vague sense that it really doesn't need to be this way, that there's another way and then felt that there's an urge within you to move towards this potential other way. When Sambhaga first stirs us, it may be an emotional state that is somewhat difficult or disturbing until it finds a really clear and healthy direction to connect to. And one of the wonderful attributes of the stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction for us to connect to. I think that it's uh, quite important at this point to note that continuing all along the way of our practice, for each one of us sitting in this room right now, Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice for each and every one of us. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and being inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind continuum process and by the phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way or another, or happenings that I'm just simply the observer of, such as the misunderstandings and the confusions that are currently occurring in this world, and the often violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this. Samvega is really the movement of the heart. The movement of the heart, an inner response, both within our formal meditation practice as well as outside of our formal practice times. And for me, it's the movement of my heart to let go deeper into my practice. It's really this flavor of Samvega that stirs 
and moves me again and again and again toward letting go, toward relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it may sometimes be experienced as an ardency, a very inspired heart-mind. We could call it a passion for spiritual practice, something that I'm sure at least some of you, if not all of you, have felt at times. And at least in part, maybe what brought you here to this retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me quite a bit. And I think it's safe to say that it's true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. It's also one of the wonderful aspects of all of us here right now. It's one of the wonderful aspects of living in a practice community such as this, even if just for a short while. We move and we inspire each other into deeper and deeper levels of practice. So, even more specifically from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, keeps moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice? There's a beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while he was being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of living in a very isolated way in a kind of make-believe world. This account of him seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. Maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical. Considering the possibility that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and the culture that Prince Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred for him before to such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches and the ease and the comfort of his existence to search for the true nature of life. This young man was profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering in life that he witnessed as he took in these four very common events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and very urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion 
in relationship to the complacent lull and familiar habits of his life. And isn't it really the same case with us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, that we've reacted. Reacted maybe by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways by where and how we spend our time. We've reacted by what we do to various manifestations of our aging body. Or we've reacted by pretending or maybe even believing that something else is happening until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that we respond rather than react. And we respond in a similar way as did Siddhartha by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun by sadness or anguish or fear or attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the natural occurrences of life. Really, our closest surroundings are full of stirring things. Stirring in the sense of samvega. And if we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that in fact render our vision dull and our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen to us in relationship to the Buddha's teachings. We certainly may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual, emotional, and spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and practices. But at times even this impetus can lose its freshness and its compelling force, as maybe some of you have experienced. So, what's the remedy? The remedy for this is actually quite simple. The remedy is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practices by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us. Which, if we look carefully, constantly illustrate what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is. Which, simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round and round and constantly changing nature of daily life. And if we continue to look really carefully into the fullness of life within us and the fullness of life surrounding us, we begin to sense and to see the cause, the origin of this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, as it's often called, which is the second of the Four Noble Truths, which, put simply again, is 
essentially a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the third truth, the third noble truth, the truth that in fact there is a potential end to this suffering. There's a solution to this predicament. The solution being simple but not so easy. The solution being to not cling. But rather to really see things utterly clearly and simply be with them as they are. And the fourth truth, the fourth noble truth, being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path, the path of practice that's offered by the Buddha. That, in fact, each one of you are engaged in walking along at your own pace. Right here, right now, in this very life. And in this very retreat. As any of you may have experienced, sometimes quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up. For instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear, anger, grief, yearning or clinging, and the self-identification that's embedded in each of these habitual reactive habit patterns. Or insight, wisdom might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long-accustomed sight of some manifestation of poverty or maybe a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one or one's own illness or bodily discomfort. Or, of course, myriad other flavors of experience. With any of these experiences having the power to startle us, meaning to promote a reflective response and to stir up a sense of urgency in our resolve to really sincerely and deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing our own experiences of body and mind very directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that is, of course, very available to each of us, moment by moment. So, for instance, a moment or successive moments of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly changing nature of bodily sensations or mental forms, mental states. Or a moment of really having a deep sense of knowing that it's all impersonal. It's all anatta. the Pali word for not-self, anatta. Mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally arising, changing, and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions. With these moments of sensing, seeing, and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, 
to go deeper towards the end of suffering. Or depending on our circumstances to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits. To step out of our conditioned inertia. Each one of us have many, many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And of course, many stories within our life as a whole. Stories that often exhibit, or at least sometimes exhibit, this knowing and the manifestation of Samvega. And it's often a part of what I hear from students during practice interviews. There are a number of really wonderful um, stories and dialogues in the suttas, uh, telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. The stirring being done by the Buddha himself, or the stirring being done by one of the arahants, one of the enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas. Devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths of time, and sometimes very long lengths of time, in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet completely free of suffering. There's a section of short uh, suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain monks, certain bhikkhus, uh, who are practicing, and and bhikkhunis, uh, the nuns as well, who are practicing in those woodland thickets. And I'd, I'd like to share a few of these encounters with you. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for his day of practice, but all the while kept on thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited that same woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, compassion for that monk, desiring his good and desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking to the bhikkhu. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outward. Remove, man, the desire for people, then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And this meaning not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for food and lust for things and lust for various objects and various experiences. And the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of the way of the good. Hard to cross, indeed, is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. So a bhikkhu, a yogi, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's Parinibbana, shortly after his death. And his closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain full enlightenment, to attain arhantship before the first Buddhist 
council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rain, rainy season retreat. Ananda had gone to the Kosalan country and entered into a forest abode to meditate. But when the people in that area uh, found out that he was there, they continuously came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence, in the law of anicca. While the forest-dwelling deva who lived there, aware that the upcoming Buddhist council wouldn't succeed, or would succeed, could succeed only if Ananda attended it as a fully enlightened being, as an arhant, came to provoke and to inspire Ananda to resume his meditation practice. And so this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart. Meditate, Gotama. Now, because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name of Gotama. So the deva said, Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. I picked this particular dialogue because though, of course, none of us are in the same position that Ananda was, we're certainly, every one of us, quite often caught up, quite seduced often, by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo it's an English word that some of you might not know. Do you know what hullabaloo means? You do know? Don't know. How can I define it? Uh, all the excessive stuff or stuff that seems important, but busyness and things that are calling our attention, all that kind of stuff that's always around. We're, we're really uh, often caught up in the seeming necessity for us to engage in all of this hullabaloo of all the various circumstances, both externally and also internally, and neglect and maybe even lose our practice. And instead, go for those things. To me, this little verse beautifully and very clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Not to neglect what needs to be attended to, of course. But to really know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. So, another verse. <clears throat> On one occasion, a certain bhikkhuni, a nun, was dwelling in Vasali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Vasali. Then that bhikkhuni, lamenting, as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Vasali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log, rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that same woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni, desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached her and addressed her in verse. And this is the deva speaking to the bhikkhuni. 
As you dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state. A forest dweller, subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content, many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realm. Then that bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming as well as potent thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva, who also inhabited that same woodland thicket, out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega, spoke these verses to that bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, and what was meant by this is meaning having relinquished or having let go of attending to things as permanent, as self, and as desirable because they're pleasurable. So the Deva says, having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully. And what the Deva meant was meaning attending to the true nature of things, their true characteristics, with a very careful attention. And the Pali word for this is yani somani sakara. So attending to them in their true nature as impermanent, as not self, and consequently unsatisfactory in nature. So the Deva says, you should reflect carefully. And the Deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, in this case meaning the Buddha, on the Dhamma, on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and to rapture and happiness as well. And then when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse that I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who, after returning uh, from his alms round, and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would then go down to a nearby pond. He'd step into it and um, sniff a red lotus. Well, when the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha, and entered into the forest to meditate. This bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving, and this is the important piece, if his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So out of compassion, and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And this is the deva speaking. When you sniff this flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds to the deva. He says, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? 
one who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, and she says, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him. But it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere's hair tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds to the deva, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O Spirit, speak to me again when you see such a deed. And the deva responds to the bhikkhu. And this was quite a surprise ending when I first read this little sutta. The deva says, We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then, And now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and now, it seems that things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings are really timeless. The solutions that the Buddha offered to our karmic predicament are as relevant today as they were in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy. The Pali word is virya. We, re- re- we feel a release of this virya energy and courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith. And the Pali word for faith is sada. And confidence, and the Pali word is pasada. Each of these qualities, energy and courage and faith and confidence, are really essential in helping us to break through what, for some of you, might be some degree of timidity, sense of timidity, or some sense of hesitation, or fear, or doubt. Or maybe for some of you, some degree of complacency. The Buddha, countless times and in countless ways, exhorted his followers to arouse some Vega. And in speaking to a group of disciples in one sutta, he says, Rouse yourselves, sit up. What good is there in sleeping? Meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion. And he goes on, he says, For those afflicted by disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by dis-ease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourself, sit up, resolutely train yourselves to attain peace. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors, which humans and most devas are attached to and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity, he says. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, confusion and anguish. And the Buddha goes on to say, negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw 
the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth and aging and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment in our own lives, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment-to-moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called uh, the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is really a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experience of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering, it isn't out there. It's not coming from some outside experience or some outside other being that it's coming from in here. In here meaning in the craving and the clinging and the fear present in our own mind, our own heart. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, coming from his own experience and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to the suffering that there's a very available release from this cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, noble qualities of heart. Moral, ethical responsibility, sila, concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy and happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, and confidence. All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency, samvega, that led us at some point to look for a solution to our predicament. (coughs) So our predicament really has a practical solution. A solution that's within the power of every human being. A solution that many of you here have begun to have a growing faith in, possibly in part through reading and studying the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But most importantly, that you've come to know out of your own direct experience through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency, out of samvega. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows and develops and deepens, for many of us it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. 
The last story that I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. It's a story that I found to be very inspiring and that invoked a a sense of spiritual urgency the first time that I read it many years ago and that continues to move me every single time I read it. These are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week I was start I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruit wood, soft, furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It felled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. This was only last week and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleadings, but he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn it from a wild animal how to live in particular. But I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, And I suspect that for me, the way is like the weasels, open to time and death, painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance, received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked, and ingested directly, like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. 
This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death where you're going no matter how you live cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death, painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. And in light of some Vega, it feels appropriate to now share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death. Words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of some Vega in them, to really exhort them to keep going along the path. And this particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from the Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I found to be quite inspiring. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa are coming together, would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or non-moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And in closing this evening's talk, <coughs> we come right back around to our opening questions. As Mary Oliver uh, poses them in her poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. 
Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.